Welcome to Noir Talk, a podcast devoted to discussing the nonprofit Film Noir Foundation. I'm your host, Hagai Latsour. The FNF's Noir City e-magazine has a new issue available. You can subscribe to this quarterly publication and receive the current issue by making a donation of $20 or more to the Foundation and signing up on their mailing list. You'll receive four issues of the best cinema publication in the world. Just go to the Contribute tab at filmnoirfoundation.org and make sure you sign up on the mailing list. All of your donation dollars go towards supporting the FNF's efforts to preserve and restore classic noir films. This issue of Noir City has greater diversity than ever. Imogen Sarah Smith's cover story celebrating Jean-Pierre Melville's centenary, Jay Kingston's article on French crime writer Georges Simenon, Ray Banks's spectacular Windrush Noir detailing Britain's post-World War II racism in the films Pool of London and Sapphire, plus insightful and accurate histories on actress Linda Darnell and Hollywood screenwriter Frank Fenton. The e-magazine has contemporary noir covered as well, with a report on the TV show Peter Gunn and Natalie Atkinson reporting on comic publications at Hard Case Crime. This quarter, The Dark Page, dedicated to contemporary crime fiction and penned by crime and mystery writer Eric Beekner, interviews writer and editor Sarah Weinman, editor of Women Crime Writers, eight suspense novels of the 1940s and 1950s. And in news, the Film Noir Foundation has a new 35mm film restoration set to premiere at Noir City 16 this January. Get ready for the restoration of the 1950 film, The Man Who Cheated Himself. And now, let's speak with our guests for this month. Foundation's Noir City DC Festival at the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center in Silver Spring, Maryland. And October is also Domestic Violence Awareness Month, a nationwide effort to spotlight resources and support for victims of domestic violence. An idea was formed last year to bring those two events together with a screening of the 1944 classic Gaslight, with a panel featuring experts on domestic violence discussing the pattern of abuse known as gaslighting. That screening and panel took place on October 8th at the AFI Silver Theater, co-presented with the Film Noir Foundation. The person who had the idea for this event and took the lead role in planning it from start to finish is Tali Elitsur, the founder of the nonprofit organization AHA Moment, which provides workshops and outreach events to help connect survivors and helpers who deal with domestic abuse and sexual assault. And if that last name sounds familiar, that's because she is, as fans of the Tony Kornheiser show would say, the woman to whom I am related by marriage. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So let's start with the origin of the idea for this event, which goes back to your experience some years ago when you first saw the film Gaslight as part of therapy for domestic violence victims. Yes, so I had been in training at the Jewish Coalition Against Domestic Abuse um, during my uh, graduate program to become a psychotherapist. And uh, I knew right away that I had wanted to work with uh, survivors of domestic violence. And when my clinical supervisor mentioned the term gaslighting to me, I mean, this was a completely new concept to me. I'd never heard of it ever. And uh, she explained the the theme of the movie, what it's about, and suggested that we do an event for some of the uh, the clients that we were all seeing to offer them as a almost like a group therapy activity to watch that movie and process it and see what it's all about. So uh, after we watched it, I personally had a very very strong reaction to it, uh, having been a domestic abuse survivor in the past and uh, experiencing gaslighting myself, it was an unbelievable reaction because it finally gave a name to something that was so vague and so um, difficult to describe. I mean, there's still few words that I could use that actually do justice to what it feels like to experience gaslighting. So this movie was an instant favorite for me, and I wish everyone in the world would get an opportunity to see it. So the exact definition of gaslighting that therapists use, it has to do with emotional abuse and perpetrator manipulating the perception of the victim, how they perceive reality, right? Yes. 
So it's uh, a systematic crazy making, as we'd like to call it uh, in our field, where the abuser or the perpetrator uses various control and um, manipulation techniques to make the survivor or whoever their target is, make them feel like their sense of reality is no good. That you, as the, the victim, start doubting yourself and you the relationship that you have with yourself is demolished because the abuser uses the differential of power in the relationship to be able to get the survivor to completely doubt their own common sense, their own gut instinct, and be able to do exactly what the abuser wants them to do and think exactly what the abuser wants them to think. And it's terrifying and paralyzing and many people live their entire lives in relationships where gaslighting is one of the main ways of holding on to control within the relationship without ever laying a hand on the survivor most of the time so most of the time there isn't physical abuse it's just a very very powerful form of emotional abuse you recognize that screening this movie in particular was a big opportunity to bring local domestic violence organizations together. So tell us about how widely the term gaslighting is known and used within that community. Well, it really depends who you speak with. So I feel like a lot of people who work with uh, in the domestic violence field in one capacity or another are familiar with it. And uh, some survivors are as well. But for just as many people as I meet who are familiar with gaslighting, there's an exponentially much larger number of survivors and people in the community in our society that have no idea what gaslighting means. And my belief is that it is our responsibility as a community to spread the word about it and to educate people about it because this does not leave physical scars like physical abuse or sexual violence. Uh, This is something that most people are not familiar with. And I was surprised how many people don't know about it. Um, So I, I encourage everyone to speak up about it. And we had our, the post-screening discussion panel with other domestic violence experts. Um, we have a link in the podcast notes to more details on the panel on the AHA Moment website, which includes the complete audio of that panel discussion, so you can hear that there. And before we talk with some of the panelists from the screening, we'd like to thank some people who are instrumental in bringing about this event. From the AFI Silver Theater, Program Director Todd Hitchcock and his staff, and of course from the Film Noir Foundation, Eddie Muller, along with Darl Sparks and Ann Hawkins. We'd also like to thank our other partner organizations for this event, Family Services Incorporated, Pathways to Safety International, and the DC Volunteer Lawyers Project. We want to give a very special thank you to our panelists, Kathleen Biden from the DC Volunteer Lawyers Project, Dominic Goodall with the House of Ruth, Gabriella Romo, who is in private practice, and our moderator, Nadia Hashimi, a pediatrician and world-renowned author. We want to thank Mike Stogg for producing video interviews with survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. Those survivors are Cheryl Kravitz, Shaharia Johnson, and Elisa Zapersky, and the videos are available on the event website. We had two other panelists as well, and we're going to talk more with them now about gaslight and gaslighting. Suddenly I'm beginning not to trust my memory at all. Paula, I tell you, you're just tired, that's all. It doesn't mean anything. I'm sure it doesn't. Don't worry, so Paula. Don't worry. Joining us now is film critic and historian Imogen Sarah Smith. Her articles have appeared in publications including Film Comment, Sight and Sound, and Film Quarterly, as well as for the Criterion Collection. She's also the author of numerous articles for the Film Noir Foundation's Noir City e-magazine, as well as the book In Lonely Places, Film Noir Beyond the City, which we discussed a few months ago on episode three of this podcast. Imogen, thanks for joining us again here on Noir Talk. Thanks for having me, Haggai. It's great to be back with you. 
And uh, Imogen, we wanted to first and foremost uh, thank you so much for making the trip down to the D.C. area to not only appear on the uh, panel, but also provide a wonderful um, introduction for our October screening of Gaslight with a Ha Moment, the Film Noir Foundation, and our many other partners. So thank you so much for representing uh, Film Noir Foundation. Well, thank you so much for having me, Tali. It really was one of the most rewarding events that I've been involved in. I was really overwhelmed by the response that we got and how meaningful it was to people. So it was really an honor to be involved, and especially with such a fantastic panel of other uh, men and women. Right, and we, yeah, we were uh, delighted and honored that you were able to join us for that. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, we have audio of that panel discussion available on the AHA Moment website, and we'll have a link to that in the podcast notes. Um, we wanted to start here with some of the themes, Imogen, that you covered in your intro for the screening. Can you give us some background on the film of Gaslight, as well as how the lead actors and the director in particular were able to portray the specific pattern of behavior that eventually became known to all of us as gaslighting? Sure. I mean, I have to say before you know, you, I heard from both of you about this idea for the event, I had never really given thought to the way that the word gaslighting has entered into our language and the fact that it originally comes from, well, first of all, a play, which was written by 1938 by Patrick Hamilton, who um, also wrote the novel that became the source for Hangover Square, the great John Brown movie with Laird Krieger, also uh, Rope, which was, of course, adapted by Alfred Hitchcock. So he was obviously a real specialist in these kind of thrillers. But the fact that the title that he gave originally gave to the play, Gaslight, has become this word that we're all hearing and using now, I think really speaks to what a powerful depiction of that, the way that this story really defined and crystallized something that I think many people kind of, as soon as they become aware of it, recognize it, but had never really had a way to talk about before because there wasn't a word, there wasn't this kind of understanding of this type of psychological manipulation. So the play was first appeared in London and then in on Broadway under the name Angel Street. It was a huge smash hit. It was made into a film in Britain in 1940 by Thorold Dickinson. I know that that movie has its champions and people who think that it's better than the Hollywood version. I really feel strongly that the 1944 version directed by George Cukor, which we showed um, on October 8th, is the strongest version of the story, Um, partly because of the way that it's really expanded. The play is very compact. It takes place over a single evening, and a lot of the play you only sort of hear about what the husband has been doing to the wife, the way that he's been manipulating her. And the MGM version in 1944 really kind of opens the story out, and it gives you a much richer kind of version of the relationship between the, you know, the husband and the wife. And that just draws you into it all the more and helps you to understand how something so seemingly extreme and strange could really happen, could happen really to anyone. And I think a lot of that also is the performances by Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman. Those are such fantastic performances, and they both really are wonderful examples of actors being cast against type. Um, Apparently, when Ingrid Bergman originally was considering this role, she wasn't sure that she was a good fit for it because she felt that, you know, she looked too healthy. She wasn't a kind of of a frail or vulnerable type. She has this kind of, of, you know, vividness and robustness And yet, ultimately, both she and I think George Cukor really understood that that actually made her performance more powerful, that seeing this happen to someone who seems like she's so full of life, she's so, you know, a woman who sort of has everything, that she could 
be undermined in this way and lose confidence in herself, seeing that happen is, is all the more painful. And she just, of course, has this incredible expressiveness that you identify so strongly with her throughout the movie. But Charles Boyer also is incredible because, you know, he plays it in a very soft and gentle and romantic way most of the time. And it is much more insidious, you know, than if he were more of a typical sort of, of you know, brutish or violent character and you can under and the fact that they added that whole preamble where you see the, them you know their them fall in love you see their honeymoon you know it might be seen as a typical sort of hollywood move to put those kind of romantic scenes in but actually it's that enables you to really understand how this could happen to this woman that she truly falls in love with him and she truly believes that he loves her and she's completely invested in the relationship. And you see the really gradual way that he starts to undermine her. And at first it's just these little things and he still kind of seems like, you know, he really cares about her and it gradually, you know, becomes more and more intense. So all of that plus, you know, the style of the movie, of course, it's beautifully filmed. It makes use of a lot of, of great kind of expressionistic, gothic cinematography and the use of, of shadows and lighting to create this really oppressive atmosphere in the house and the fact that almost all of the movies set in that house. It just is really powerful. And I think, you know, it was, I think when I saw it, at the AFI last, you know, at the beginning of this month, because the first time I'd seen it with an audience. And it's a very interesting experience to watch it with an audience and um, to see how strongly people react to it. And, and the fact that it also has, you know, some humor in it is really important because you kind of really need that because some of the scenes are so painful that they almost can be difficult to watch. But it's made into something that's both a very, you know, entertaining experience and yet really emotionally devastating at the same time. So, yeah, I, um, I totally agree. It was, I think, one of the most uh, impactful films I have ever seen. And this was also my first time seeing it um, with such a large audience. Um, and it was incredible i mean it was i did not expect for for the laughs to come out even though they were definitely the humorous moments and uh it, it definitely lightened the uh the mood a little bit um i wanted to ask you a little bit about uh gaslight as film noir when Hagai and i first uh talked about it and i suggested that we uh, speak with Eddie and with AFI about screening Gaslight. I asked Hagai if uh, he thought this would be considered a film noir, and he said, "Well, I don't see why why it wouldn't." And uh, later on, um, you know, as Eddie became uh, more recently very involved in uh, on Facebook, um, he uh, posted a question about. Uh, is Gaslight considered a noir film or not? And uh, that it really was kind of 50-50 down the line where people stood on it. So I wanted to ask you your opinion. Uh, how do you feel about Gaslight being a film noir? First of all, I mean, I have to say, for all my you know, very deep involvement in writing about film noir, the question of is X film really a film noir is not something that I often find the most useful way to talk about. <laughs> um, but I think there clearly are connections to noir, particularly in the, the emphasis on psychology and on interiority, that it's really all about what's going on inside this woman's mind. And it's using the visual techniques that we associate with film noir to make her interior state, you know, to visualize those interior states and to make them, you know, part of the whole look and mood of the movie. And the whole sense that she's in some way, I don't want to say complicit in what happens to her, but it's all happening 
it, you know, the whole thing is psychological, everything that's going on between them. I mean, there, there is the kind of, of story about, you know, the murder and the jewels and, and that, which is sort of, you know, providing a motive and, it, and it's kind of a conventional uh, thriller plot element. But it's, it's just all about this really poisonous relationship between these two people. And, of course, the, the husband as well is kind of a, you know, a sick person. And you see gradually by the end that he, you know, he is really kind of a, a tortured person as well. That all to me, you know, is absolutely key to noir. And of course, there were a lot of films at the same time that used a lot of the same kind of elements, both domestic thrillers, which could be set in the present or, you know, be period pieces, and also all the other kind of Victorian Gothic thrillers. That, that was a, you know, they're perhaps, you know, you might consider them to sort of overlap with noir or be a sort of a subgenre. Um, but, you know, I think the way that the film really conveys so powerfully these states of anxiety and of self-doubt and of a certain kind of, of certain kinds of really destructive interior states is that's sort of what noir is all about. I think, yeah, the, the visual style in the 1944 version in particular definitely uses some of the, the noir style from that time to accentuate the um, the darkness and the, the hold that the power of the husband has over the wife. Um, you identify with that very strongly through a lot of the visual style. So I think that, as you said, is, is one of the main things about it that could really characterize it as, as film noir. On the other hand, the identification as the audience that we have so strongly with the wife, with Ingrid Bergman's character, um, I think is maybe the half of it that is a little bit less noir, because usually in the noirs you're identifying more with the people who are doing the um, doing the deed that's kind of bad, or that are trying to pull off a scheme, or moving into some sort of very dark uh, thing, getting in over their head. And it would almost be like if you had this kind of story and you identified with the person who's trying to perpetrate the scam on the other person, that that would be kind of more of a noir thing, right? Well, on the other hand, though, if you think about all the noirs that are basically about men who are suckered by a femme fatale, you know, that is similarly about deception, you know, and often you identify with, you know, this person, whether it's, you know, Jeff Bailey or out of the past or whoever, who believes in someone and then has this moment when they realize that this person has been using them, has been lying to them, and that that kind of moment of disillusionment and the sense of how, you know, painful that is to realize that someone that you've trusted has really been manipulating you for their own ends. That's a pretty classic noir situation. You know, and then, you know, there are also are, of course, many films in the sort of noir universe that are woman in peril movies, um, you know, where they're about usually a woman who starts to suspect or discovers that her husband is threatening her, is planning to kill her or whatever, um, often set in these kind of domestic spaces. So, um, you know, I guess my sense of, of noir is that there's not... There's not one type of plot that is the defining thing. It's more that overall sense of kind of isolation, which you really have in this movie with how you know isolated the wife becomes, and the sense of not you know not being able to trust other people, not being able to you know not having anything you know to hold on to that feeling of, of alienation or of paranoia uh, is, is, to me, really the defining feature. 
And his character, as, as you're mentioning, is in a way kind of an homme fatale, right? Like you were talking about earlier, how the romance in the earlier scene sets him up as this kind of seductive or even loving character. So you are identifying with her as she is kind of falling for him. And then eventually that oh, returns. Ab- absolutely. And you see the way, I mean, even right up to the end, you know, his strongest hold over her is that she loves him and that he has this seductiveness and this ability to, you know, continue to dominate her, but dominate her through, you know, through her love for him. So, yes, I think he's a classic homme fatale. And he's in it for the money, too, which is usually what the femme fatales are in it for, right? Right, but in a particularly obsessive way. And, I mean, he has, I don't know if we want to go into spoilers. I guess we're probably (laughs) assuming most people will have seen the movie. But his very last line, you know, is talking about how he says, I don't understand why, you know, these jewels have always had this hold on me and they've been, you know, between us. And so there's almost a sense of him also being this kind of victim of this overwhelming obsession that he can't control, something that he has to have. So he is he is also, you know, a, a very noir character in that sense. version and uh, you mentioned earlier just the um, importance of including that falling in love piece that the 1940 didn't version didn't have uh, as much of or really any of um, and to me it really resonated as a therapist working with survivors because so often we hear the why didn't he or she just leave and that's really one of the big reasons that they don't that emotional investment and uh, Ingrid Bergman did an amazing job of portraying that in, in that version. Uh, there wasn't as much of that in the 1940 version. However, uh, the part that really resonated for me with that version was Anton Wilbrook's uh, performance. His just evil sociopath with the facial expressions, which not taking anything away from Charles Boyer, who did an amazing job, but it really was very exciting to see. And what we learned after the uh, the screening event was that AFI uh, Silver Theater actually got the wrong 35 millimeter print. Uh, they got the 1940 version and had to rush to get the uh, 44 version, which makes this even more exciting down to the last minute. And um, <laughs> we did have some requests online uh, as we were promoting the, the uh, film and later on. Uh, why don't you guys show the 1940? And the 1940 is better, far, far, far superior. And uh, it was the first time I've ever seen it uh, when they showed it later on. Uh, I think it was two or three days later? Oh, about a week later, they did a screening okay. of the 1940 version. They said, well, we've got this print here. We may as well take advantage of the opportunity and show this very rarely screened movie. And it was fantastic. I mean, I, I walked out of there feeling like, wow. I really, I mean, I felt like it was a completely different film. I mean, a lot of similarities, different names. Um, But I wanted to get your take on this. Uh, I mean, we've had some very strong opinions, even in discussing it after the film. Um, How did you feel about the two films compared to each other? I think it's really interesting the way that people disagree. I, I mean, they're certainly both really well worth seeing the British the Thoral Dickinson version from 1940 is really interesting for comparison. I mean, I've already said that to me, the 1944 version is 
ultimately stronger. And, you know, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Anton Walbrook. He's actually one of my favorite actors, and his performance is so totally different from Charles Boyer's that it's very interesting to see these just two completely different interpretations, which I think are both valid and, you know, fit the different ways that the, that the scripts are structured. Um, Anton Wahlberg is, is playing much more of a kind of typical sort of domestic tyrant. I mean, there's a scene, which is not in the 1944 version, where you see him, he's reading, the, he's got, got not only his wife, but all the, the two female servants, and he's reading from the Bible, you know, and you get this sense of him as this kind of patriarchal, you know, and he's, of course, he was Austrian, so he has this kind of, you know, Teutonic sort of ability to just be really authoritarian and scary. And there's even more, I think, of a sense of of a really scary kind of edge of insanity in his role, especially towards the end, that he seems very out, out of control. Um, it's a very powerful performance, but... I mean, I mean, of course, he could be extremely charming and extremely seductive as well when he wanted to. I mean, Anton Wahlberg could. And you see, a, he does that a little bit, so you can sort of get a sense, again, that, that he controls the wife through, through a kind of romantic power over her. But um, to me, she is a lot weaker, Diana Winyard. She just, she has this kind of a, of a stiff upper lip, British sort of um, demeanor and she just she comes across as a as a sort of weaker character to begin with there's just not as much vibrancy about her you don't have the sense as you do with Ingrid Bergman of her having this you know talent for singing which which the you know Paula in the 1944 version um you know, you see her studying music and so forth. You just get a, a richer sense of her character. Um, so the the dynamic between them is even more unequal, which is not necessarily, you know, wrong, but it, it's like, I guess to me, the British version is more sort of all on one level of just being this really painful situation. And the Hollywood version has these more sort of ups and downs, you know, it has the romantic parts, it has more humor, but it also has the, the kind of painful and, and more, you know, almost horror elements with the, the visuals. So it's altogether to me a kind of richer experience, but the British version has this kind of very uncompromising quality, you know, which in itself has a certain power. It's also closer to the play. Um, because it doesn't add on sort of things outside of the main structure. Um, also, you know, they, they change the character of the detective in the 1944 version to make him a younger man who's got a kind of romantic interest in the heroine. There are, you know, there are a number of differences like that, and the, the British version gives you a better sense of what the play would have been like. But it's interesting that there are certain scenes in the British version, which they used again in the American version, which are not in the play. For instance, the scene where they go to the concert, you know, and the husband pretends that his watch, she's stolen his watch. And it's just, you know, this horribly painful kind of scene where he publicly humiliates her. That's in the, that's in the Thorold Dickinson version. So it's interesting that they kind of, took parts of that and parts of the play and kind of made up some new stuff um, in the in the American version. It's sort of a mixture of all of those. So, you know, well worth seeing, but I, I'm not sure. I mean, I often hear people say this, oh, the British version is so much better, but I have rarely heard a real explanation for why, why people think that's the case. Um, and, I, you know, which leads me to sort of suspect that, some people just have a knee-jerk assumption that the Hollywood remake is clearly inferior. Um, and I think this is actually, to me, a case where it's not. But I don't mean to, you know, put down the British version. I just think that the, the Cuker version is even better. 
as you mentioned, the the British version probably they were really just sticking closer to the play, to this uh, hit play they had, and they were adapting it, and they went with a fairly straightforward adaptation. My guess for why the 1944 version ended up expanding is part of the reason I'm guessing is they were really developing it as a star vehicle for Ingrid Bergman. So they added more stuff about her character and to allow the audience to identify more with her, give her more to do. And I think in doing that, they may have, and maybe I'm not giving them enough, giving them enough credit for this, but they may have inadvertently backed into this much more profound um expression of this psychological effect or phenomenon that we're still talking about today from a clinical perspective. As Tali, I think, would say, the 1944 version is a more authentic portrayal of what we now know as gaslighting because it does show those various phases of the relationship from the very beginning when they're in love up to when the manipulation begins. Yes, I definitely definitely agree. And I think the... You know, as I mentioned, the play actually, the sort of most of the play actually concerns the detective, you know, so it's sort of more of a typical just thriller and about and and sort of, you know, detective story about how he is, you know, unraveling this case. I think the Kuker version because it paid more attention to the relationship and the kind of, you know, emotional uh, aspects of it does become a more powerful. It's harder to understand in the earlier versions exactly who the wife is and how she's gotten into this position. And one of the other things that's added in the 1944 version is the backstory about Paula having been, you know, the niece of the woman who was murdered. So already having had this kind of traumatic uh, thing happen in her youth, having this connection to the house, you know, having to come back to this house where this, you know, terrible thing happened. None of that is actually in the play. So again, they're giving up her character a backstory. I think you're absolutely right. You know, it, um, it's creating a richer character for for the wife, making her really the center um, of of the movie in a way that she's she's just not as as developed a character, and so there's more of a sense, I think, in the play of it being a bit of a you know, sort of combat between the detective and the husband, you know, over who is going to win, whether the husband is going to be able to get away with this or the detective is going to be able to catch him. So, I mean, aside from uh, having the uh, the te- detective character involved in retrospect, especially after having this conversation with you, and I, I love that you brought up the uh, various stages of the relationship and the what we call now and know now is the cycle of abuse being portrayed in the Hollywood version. I feel really good about having the, us choose the uh, the 1944 version. We got a lot of uh, responses from survivors, male and female, that uh, Ingrid Bergman's performance really was relatable. Uh, she was vulnerable, which they could relate to, um, scared and uh, many times, and then confused and go through all of the emotions, even the shame, the isolation, all the things that we speak to survivors about, either in trainings or in uh, clinical settings, she did it. And then, you know, to end on such a strong note of hope and yes, it, it doesn't have to be, okay, you're going to end up with the detective or some kind of uh, strong male figure, you know, rescuing you, but you can rescue yourself. So I was definitely very pleased with that version. It is such an extraordinary performance. I mean, it's she's just her expressiveness and as you say that all the different nuances that she's able to bring out you know the the sense of humiliation and and you know the sense of how it really progresses you know makes it just as i find it really painful to watch but that's very much a, you know a, a, uh, an accolade for her performance. Um, and of course, you know, she did win the Academy Award, I think, very deservedly 
Absolutely. And it, you know, it, it blows my mind, Imogen, that back then, 1944, they touched on everything that we talk about today when we, when we work with uh, domestic violence survivors, domestic abuse. Um, they, they really nailed it. I mean, these are things that we could spend day-long trainings teaching other clinicians, and here you've got filmmakers who just hit it right on the, the head. I'm, you know, I'm fascinated by the fact that this became such a sort of popular subject at the time, not just gaslighting, but sort of um, women in abusive relationships in general. And it's always hard to say with Hollywood, you know, did it just kind of become a fad, you know, and I think some of the versions have a lot more depth in in really exploring the, the nature of those kind of relationships than others. But um, it's just very interesting that at this time, you know, and it's the end, just at the end of the war and, you know, men coming back and a women kind of being pushed out of the workplace and this new sort of emphasis on the idea that women should go back to the home and, you know, should have kids. And um, this sort of, if you think of the post-war period in the 50s as being, you know, totally celebratory of domesticity and this kind of idealized vision of the, you know, the wife who stays home and the, you know, traditional kind of of marriage and at the same time you have all these films all of a sudden in which women are finding themselves in you know finding the home and marriage to be not a place of security but a place of danger and you know something very very menacing and very isolating so I think that to me you know is one of the things about noir that it has this way of both of kind of tending to uh, showing the, the opposite, you know, the, the dark side or the underside of what was the sort of mainstream of society at the time, but also being able to use these kind of formulas that were just considered to be, oh, you know, thrillers, suspense movies, but to actually use them to make very strong statements about social issues going on, um, including, you know, domestic abuse and the powerlessness of women, you know, at the time and the ways that that marriage could really be, you know, a trap for them. Yes. And with film noir, all these years later, more than 70 years after that movie was released, we're still talking about it and the impact it has. And these films in particular, and with the Film Noir Foundation partnering with this event, we can see that social issues and social justice issues in this case are wrapped up very closely with a lot of the themes that were covered in these films. And um, one way or the other, the things they were talking about back then are still very much with us today and are important issues that, um, that all of us are dealing with and trying to tackle. So thanks again, Imogen, for um, being a big part of the event and for joining us here on Noir Talk. And thank you so much again, Imogen, and thank you to the Film Noir Foundation for being involved in this very important message. Well, thank you, Tali, for, for conceiving of this, which I think was a really important event, and I think there are many more opportunities to use films really as a as a way to talk about issues that are still important to us today. And and thank you, Haggai, for the podcast and for helping all of this to happen. It's really been um, a great experience for me to be involved. Paula, I hope you're not starting to imagine things again. You're not, are you, Paula? Of course I'm not. Well, I hope you're not. But if you start talking about the way Nancy looks at you, don't turn away, Paula. We must have this out. Do you really think Nancy despises you? Well, answer me, Paula. Do you? No, Gregory. Oh, I'm glad of that. It hurts me when you're ill and fanciful. We are joined now by Paula Lucas. She is the author of the book Harvesting Stones, An American Woman's International Journey of Survival, which is her own story of surviving an abusive marriage abroad. She is also the founder and executive director of Pathways to Safety International, 
a nonprofit organization providing critical support to Americans who are traveling, studying, working, and living abroad if they become victims of sexual assault, stalking, dating violence, domestic violence, or forced marriage. Paula, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Paula, thanks so much for being on the panel of our Gaslight screening on October 8th. Uh, we wanted to first start with just some background about your own personal experience with gaslighting. So you and your children experienced many kinds of abuse from your ex-husband, which uh, you chronicled in the uh, Harvesting Stones book. Um, but I wondered if you could tell us about your recollections of what it felt like to experience gaslighting as part of that abuse, uh, what it was like for you to experience it directly, and what it was like to witness the effect of that on your children as well. Well, yeah, I, I remember one particular situation that I, I think still today haunts me as, um, you know, my ex-husband was very, very abusive. It was, you know, every kind of abuse you could imagine. But one day, I was sort of sitting in our entryway, and he was in the kitchen with my oldest son, and they were pulling something out of the refrigerator, and he didn't know I was there. And he told my son, look, you see that food in the back? It's moldy. It's moldy because your mother doesn't love you. She wants you to eat it so it will poison you. Only I love you. Your mother doesn't love you. So it just hit me like there was just this knife going through my heart. And clearly my son knows I love him. He knows I'm not trying to poison him. But it was a, a real classic example of how an abuser changes someone's reality to believe something else to serve their own purpose. And it, it can, you know, for a child to hear, you know, your mother doesn't love you, she wants to poison you. I mean, how horrible is that? Um, when clearly he knows I love him. So I would say that was one of what, you know, you're living like that and it's this constant situation where the abuser's trying to derail your reality to maintain control of you, of your children, uh, so that you are just completely under control and like you don't leave them, that you're staying with them, but they just have to keep exercising this extreme control over you. How did it, receiving uh, gaslighting or emotional abuse uh, on a regular basis affect your relationship with yourself and your ability to trust your own instinct? That's very difficult because you're so isolated. So you, in your head, you're going, oh, no, wait a minute, this isn't right. You know, um, another example would be I, I cooked dinner one time and I, I made it with small shrimp. He said he wanted shrimp. And he came in and he said, I wanted the big shrimp. I told you big shrimp. I said, no, you didn't say what size shrimp. So it's, just, it's constantly having your reality eroded. And you know inside, but then there's nobody really to go to to speak to because you're so isolated. And in my case, you know, I did end up going to my mother-in-law and I told her, you know, that this, these things were happening. And her only response was, uh, haram, lakin huwa behebek. So that's horrible, but he loves you. So getting this mixed message. So even when I went to try to get help for this, you know, the message was, yeah, that's horrible, but he loves you. So some, at some level, that's okay. So it's it's really hard. Um, you start doubting yourself, and then you just want to be compliant, just because you know that if you argue back, if um, you know you start saying, "Well, no, that wasn't true," then maybe that will escalate to some kind of physical violence. So you become sort of complacent and compliant, so that you just keep the peace, so that nobody gets hurt. And it's very very difficult. What's your advice for someone who is experiencing this kind of emotional abuse now, this gaslighting of having your reality questioned, as you were just talking about? Oh, I, I think the important thing is that the person, the victim, you know, has a support network that they can go to or somebody, maybe one person they can go to, to kind of as a reality check. And again, that can be really hard if they're isolated. And, you know, to say, you know, I'm feeling like, you know, my reality is, is being um, questioned and all these things are happening. And But somebody that can maybe be supportive without, like, telling them what they should do, but 
there that, that can listen and say, no, you're not crazy. It's, you know, you're, you're a good person. You're not doing bad things. You are, you know, you're, you, what you think is, is correct. So sometimes you just need somebody you can really trust to talk to that can, a rea- that you need a reality check basically, but you need someone else to validate you. And again, the isolation can make that difficult. Absolutely. That, that must have been horrifying for you, for your children, and must have been quite a, a healing process from there. Um, but it, it is great that you mentioned that, you know, you, you should go to someone who you can trust, who can give you a reality check. And that's also a bit of a wake-up call for the rest of us who most most of us know someone or multiple people who are in abusive relationships. And uh, it, it's a reminder to all of us to be patient with someone who's in a relationship that's abusive, not to say, oh, you have to leave, but to, to listen, to not pass judgment and just be that sounding board for that person and possibly give them some resources as well. Uh, I wanted to to bring it back to the uh, the gaslight event. Um, I know that, that for me, when, when I first saw the, that film as a survivor, was extremely powerful. And uh, my mother, when, who, who attended the event, said that uh, as she was leaving the theater, she saw a few people kind of sitting off to the side feeling very emotional and kind of processing uh, the impact that the film had on them. Uh, for you as a survivor, what was it like sitting there and seeing on a very large screen a uh, very emotional depiction of things that you had experienced yourself? What was that like for you? Well, it was interesting because at the very beginning of the movie when, um, you know, Paula's talking to Gregory and she suggests they move to Paris, and he goes, well, no, London. And then when she needs to go to Lake Como just to sort of think things through, and suddenly, you know, she gets off the train, and he's already there, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. I mean, it was like, it's, it's for me now as a survivor, I can see that as the, the power and control is so clear from the beginning, but it under this guise of being romantic he's so romantic you know he look he showed up at the you know Lake Como or you know he wants to move to London and and just sort of but he does it in such this sweet way that you don't think that this is going to um you know turn out bad but I wanted to look at the people next to me go do you see that do you see what he's doing (laughs) you can see that Um, so I think it was really interesting and it it almost like when I look back, sort of playing my own, you know, situation back, I'm like, yeah, that's how that starts. It starts with that seemingly innocent, but I love you so much, I can't be away from you. Oh, let's do these things together. Um, and but it's really about power and control, but it's under this disguise of love and caring. Um, so yeah, that was it. Was really interesting, and it, it is interesting seeing it on the big screen, and very powerful. And I think it was very, very powerful. And what did you make of sharing the same first name as the main character, uh, Paula, who was portrayed so uh, powerfully by Ingrid Bergman? Yes, that was interesting. Yeah, it keeps on, yeah, Paula, yeah, that's her, not me. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, yeah, so that that was interesting. It was just quite a coincidence, actually. Um, But yeah, I thought she did a beautiful job of, you know, portraying the, you know, a person that's trying to survive in this crazy situation. Yeah, if anyone can identify with that situation, it's uh, certainly you, and uh, I'm sure very nice to be able to identify with uh, as great a star and as great an actress as Ingrid Bergman was in one of her best performances. I also wanted to mention and to really ask both of you that, as it turns out, the screening when we did it of Gaslight at the AFI Silver, it was almost immediately after that first story had broken in the New York Times about Harvey Weinstein and all the women who he abused over the years. Uh, coming forward in public for the first time. It was like two or three days after that first story had broken. So the impact wasn't really clear yet at that time. And now we're recording this almost uh, well several weeks later, and we can see there's really been a big impact, certainly in Hollywood and now spreading to other industries with some very powerful names, um, not just Harvey Weinstein, but the head of production at Amazon Studios and uh, Mark Halperin, very powerful political journalist, have lost a lot of uh, cachet, um, with uh, women coming forward with stories of abuse that they suffered over the years and 
uh, even as we talk about this, just all the stories breaking about Kevin Spacey. So I wanted to ask both of you, um, in this landscape that we seem to be in now, hopefully, um, how can everyone support what appears to be a chance for an increase in accountability for perpetrators of these crimes and just general awareness of harassment and sexual assault in general as we, uh, as we see it playing out now? Well, I'm really happy to see the Me Too movement. I I think it's, you know, it's really hard for survivors to come out, but I think the more survivors that do come out, the more they feel supported. They they feel less ashamed to come out and say that, yes, this happened to me too. But, I mean, it's just millions of women, and it's, it's, I'm happy to see that it's coming out. It's unfortunate that it's been, you know, clearly for decades where, um, these women, some of these women have been keeping these secrets that they're able to come out and have a voice. And I think it's, it's um, going to change the landscape. I really think it's going to change the landscape for sexual assault survivors uh, moving forward to be able to have that voice and not have it silenced. Of course, you still have the other side that says, oh, these women are lying. But, you know, I don't think so. I, I think that this has really given women um, the impetus to be able to, to raise their voices and say, yeah, this, is ha- this happened to me too, and it's not acceptable. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we hear about techniques like what you mentioned of, oh, she's lying or, oh, he's lying about being a, a victim or being a survivor, rather. And for me as a professional in this field and as a survivor, it's really exciting. It's not like, oh my God, look at these horrible stories coming out now. It's, oh my God, finally, people are listening. Finally, people are paying attention to something that's been going on all along. And it's not been an increase of occurrence uh, right now. It's finally, there's the atmosphere where people feel emotionally safe enough to to disclose. I mean, I even in, in the therapeutic setting, I could work with a client for months or even a year before they even identify as a survivor. And here we're creating an environment where it's safe to say, yes, I survived these types of crimes. Yes, this happened to me. Men, women, uh, young, old, rich, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter the demographics, people across the board are feeling more comfortable coming forward. And I'm, I couldn't be happier. I agree. Absolutely. Tali that, you know, if this is a good thing and people are raising their voices and I think it would change the landscape in terms of even perpetrators and predators that before they sort of had this, this um, cloak of protection because survivors weren't coming out and that thing, that cloak's falling off there. I think it's, as we move forward, women taking their power back and taking their power back collectively is really going to to make a difference moving forward for sexual assault survivors. Absolutely. And uh, both uh, Paula, your organization, uh, Pathways to Safety International, uh, the organization uh, with AHA Moment, the DC Volunteer uh, Lawyers Project that that joined forces with us, Family Services Incorporated, the thousands of other organizations around the country are available to continue the conversation. I mean, this isn't something that needs to just be read on uh, social media and on uh, news news releases about these occurrences. We have information we want to share with the community. We want to educate the community. If someone's unsure about where that line is when flirting is becomes harassment or, or assault, we are more than happy to have the conversations about consent without judgment. We want the community to understand it. Uh, we want survivors to understand that the things that happen to them that they may have normalized or dismissed as just this thing that happened in my past and I'm going to bury it and not think about it is important and it definitely has an effect on the rest of your life moving forward. So we we are there to help give referrals and help process things and uh, as Hagai mentioned, uh, both Paula's organization and AHA Moment are both going to be included in the uh, podcast notes. Okay, thanks again to uh, Paula Lucas here for joining us, and thanks so much for being part of the panel uh, and supporting this event and for um, giving us some more information about your story and about um, some other things that victims and people who are interested in these issues uh, can do with, uh, to help the um, hopeful progress that's being made these days. 
Great. Well, thank you again for having me. And, you know, I think together we can all make a difference moving forward. Thank you, Paula. Thank you. Thanks again to Imogen Sarah Smith and Paula Lucas for joining my wife Tommy and me for this episode. Our podcast is available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. You can receive all the latest news about the work of the Film Noir Foundation by signing up on their email list at filmnoirfoundation.org. You can also get updates by following the FNF on social media at Film Noir Foundation on Facebook and Tumblr and at Noir Foundation on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for the podcast, please rate and review our show on iTunes, or you can contact us via email at podcast at filmnoirfoundation.org. We'll be back next month with another episode, and until then, thanks for joining us here at Noir Talk.